Welcome back to another episode of People of Product. My name is George Brooks, and on today's episode, I had the pleasure to talk to Sarah Duty. Sarah is the founder and CEO of Career Strategy Lab, a UX accelerator that helps UX and product professionals navigate their job search and get hired without applying to hundreds of jobs. She's helped people get hired at IBM, Home Depot, Microsoft, Salesforce. She's the real deal. She loves helping her clients think through the basic principles of what it means to step up with your portfolio, to have that confidence about being a good storyteller, to have the right resume, and then really just step into saying you're capable, you have the permission to go after these jobs of your dreams. So I loved the passion that Sarah had as we we navigated through the conversation around just basic things that we see when we're looking for applicants, and then also the, the basic things that really hold people back from really going after those great opportunities. I think you're going to love this conversation, especially if you're just getting into this industry, or if you're looking for people that uh, to hire people just getting into the, this industry, I think you're going to learn something really special from Sarah. Let's jump right in. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. I'd love to just pass it straight to you. Why don't you give a quick introduction about yourself, your background, and who you are? Awesome. I'm excited to chat with you, George. Um, I am the founder and CEO of something called Career Strategy Lab, which is a UX career accelerator slash incubator. We're kind of experimenting with, with messaging, but we consider ourselves very much like a startup incubator where... You come to us and you are trying to either be ready in case unexpected opportunities come your way or get hired like in six months or less, basically. Um, so our program really incubates you through the entire job search and everything that entails, resume, portfolio, LinkedIn, preparing for interviews, networking, all that stuff. And that is a complete accident. <laughs> um, I never intended to get into this. It was never even a, a consideration. And it's really a product of me doing research and experience design for so long. And that research muscle kicking in around 2017, when I noticed this problem and very long story short, I did a couple of really small kind of lunch and learn style workshops. And I really thought I'll do this once and I'll never have to talk about this again. <laughs> And uh, then people started to get hired and they said, can this workshop be longer? And I thought, okay, so it's been a five-year evolution of that. And now we're a team of five. Um, and that's pretty much all I do. Although I was just on the road for a very quick research trip um, to Chicago and Nashville. So yeah, that's what, that's what consumes all of my time these days. You are busy. That, yeah. that sounds amazing. <laughs> and in such a unique time too, right? Because the talent market is, can I just say like weird right now? I don't exactly yes. know how to describe it. So I guess, how are you describing the talent market right now? I mean, especially in yeah. the niche that you're focused into, when you look at the, you know, the last today, gosh, today versus three months ago versus uh, three years ago versus yeah. five years, what, how do you describe where we're at right now? So it's funny, I was just doing this research project with a colleague of mine um, 
who he and I actually created and taught the first version of General Assembly's UX bootcamp back in 2011, 2012 in New York City. Yeah. And back then, I don't know if anyone else had boot camps or if General Assembly was the first, but it was definitely General Assembly's first. And it's been very interesting to watch the industry over the last 10 years. And I would say, especially the last five, six years, the emergence of so many boot camps. And, you know, this is getting to the problem we're all aware of, which is a lot of people wanting to get into the industry, finding it hard to get hired, and the expectation that, well, shouldn't it be fast for me to get a job? <laughs> you know, you, you see these posts on social media all the time, right? Yeah. And on the flip side, because I've gotten into recruiting and hiring recently, according to my data, which is like 80 companies that have raised their hand and want to work with us on recruiting, which I basically need to clone myself now, but <laughs> we can talk about that. I get I don't know. it. I, get I, need it. To, I'm, I am trying to zap the heck out of everything I do, but, um, you know, companies on the other hand are really struggling to find candidates. And I think one of the breakdowns in our industry is that so many people have a very narrow either desire or target list of companies they want to work at. So a lot of people want to work at fang companies, right? Mm -hmm. And I say to them, you could do that. Um, but there are so many companies out there that are not a fang company, but are not just a bootstrapped startup that will pay you a ton of money, give you a ton of benefits, let you work from anywhere. And you'll have a great life and probably do cool work too, you know? Yeah. So I don't agree with the, the statements about like, it's such a tough market, et cetera, because I see both sides of it, you know? And I think the challenge that a lot of people have roots into things that are within their control, such as learning how to present yourself as an effective candidate and not rushing through your resume, your LinkedIn, your portfolio, playing the numbers game, et cetera. And I say that with a high amount of confidence because I see this happen week after week with people getting hired who join our program and do what we teach. <laughs> so talk me through that a little bit. You're because this is so important. I mean, I've talked to so many young designers, so many young professionals coming into this space over the years, especially as Crema grew and, and, and our, my company grew. And we kind of, you know, we didn't always have a spot for people, but we were always recruiting. So we always used to say, we're always recruiting, but we're not always hiring, right? Right. And so we were always looking for folks that had potential. But in those conversations, it was also like there was people that that didn't ha yet have the potential. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where it was like, hey, let me just give you a, a couple basic pointers. Now I know what mine are. What are the things that you kind of lean into? And I don't want you to give away the whole secret sauce because yeah. they should go check out your program for a lot of yeah. that. But what are the what are the areas that as you're talking to talent that's interested in getting into this space, into this world, you know, you already mentioned a few basic things, but where do they, where do you get started? What's the the 101? Yeah. So I think there's two challenges if we think of people, you know, who just graduated college and are looking for their first professional job and therefore don't have experience, or this massive category of career switchers, as I call them, which are the teachers, the nurses, the industrial designers, architects, et cetera, 
who are connecting the dots between their current career and the future and realizing, wait a sec, I can make more money, have better quality of life if I did this. (laughs) So for those people that have that chicken and egg, I don't have enough experience, but I can't get experience if someone hires me. You know, there's the question of, for example, with the portfolio, because I'm sure you've looked at a lot of portfolios and and you're hiring and a lot of those portfolios all look the same (laughs) and a lot of the portfolios or the people fear that recruiters are going to dismiss bootcamp projects, like almost verbatim from a lot of people. Or do, do, do recruiters dismiss personal projects, mock projects, whatever you want to call them. And I mean, I don't have hardcore data on this, but from a lot of conversations with hiring managers, the theme is I would like to see evidence that you have done UX in the real world with a real team for all the reasons that, you know, dealing with all those constraints, like it's not the perfect scenario, but, and this is a big, but if you can demonstrate to me that you just didn't dump a bunch of deliverables and screenshots into a a document and call it a portfolio, but actually talk me through what you did. Why did you do it? Why was it done this way? What were the steps? What happened? That is going to stand out lightning years from someone with three, five, seven years experience who just has like a screenshot upon screenshot style portfolio. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Because what we found, what we have found is the person, we've had a lot of people that come in with quote unquote, lots of experience because they have years at a place come to find out one thing that's actually dangerous about that is that you can be insulated inside of a team and never have done anything. Exactly. Right. And so we, we actually, there's, I'm with you that we want to hear the story behind the story, right? What's the brief behind the brief of the the work that you actually did on that team. If you're switching or if you're, you're coming from, you know, kind of another place, just like us, I guess, to some extent in the same career space, but for people coming up, I'm a hundred percent fine with at least me personally, not everybody is with work that is quote unquote faked, right? Yeah. That is that is something you did on your own time during a boot camp, during a, a school or whatever, as long as you gave really good thinking behind it. Yep. Um, and the best example I have of this, and then and then I want to see kind of if you have any good examples of this as well. Is I we do. Had a designer. <laughs> yeah. And in, in, we had a uh, um, in a um, a oh my gosh, my brain, a industrial designer uh-huh. that she wanted to switch into UX while in college, like last semester. She's like, I don't really know. Think I want to do ID. I think I want to switch to UX. So she actually applied to work at Spotify. And so she had put together this this portfolio presentation, which actually was a movie Mm -hmm. of her taking a Spotify experience and creating a new UX around matching it with personality profiles and these other things. Just kind of this unique take on the Spotify UX. Yeah. And so she went from everything from mood board on a wall, time-lapsed of her pulling it up, kind of mixing things together to her sketching out ideas. She ended up, you know, she was a great artist, so that helped. Mm-hmm. And then she went straight into prototyping, time-lapsed her prototyping into actually sitting down with people. And it was this like, you know, three-minute hmm. video, real wow. short, but it showed her a whole process. And we basically, she goes, you know, I don't think I got the job at Spotify. And I said, you, you have an offer right now. Wow. And she was with us for like four years. That's and amazing. So, yeah. I mean, like that's the type of example of 
thinking behind the work versus here's a screenshot of the thing that I, I did because I was on a team or because I was tasking yeah. this at school. No, because let's face it. It's so easy to learn the basics of using software to draw boxes or diagrams and make deliverables, right? Yeah, yeah. It's another skill to be able to, well, A, like talk through things with colleagues, clients, stakeholders, et cetera, but B, like to know you're making the right thing, right? And I think yes. that's part of a challenge with our industry is we have this, like, we put on a pedestal all these shiny designs and things like that. And we're just making designs with some brief that has no constraints that you got on like a daily UI challenge thing. And that's great to polish those skills, but you also need to think of a lot of constraints and take feedback, you know, and, and tailor things beyond, beyond the design. But one example I have Someone in our career strategy lab, they um, they were switching to UX from something that I can't remember what it was now, but okay. they wanted to do a project that was not something they did in their boot camp because they just thought they wanted to diversify and they were excited about this product they made. And basically they'd had surgery, were in the hospital for however many days and experienced the challenge of trying to use the call button to call nurses and everything, all the friction there, right? And they created this app. It was iPad and iPhone or something um, that would allow the patient to communicate with the different nursing staff and, you know, there were levels of escalation, right? Like, I can't breathe, maybe. <laughs> anyway, it was very interesting. But they interviewed nurses, and I don't know if they made friends with them and went back after they got out of the hospital. They must have. Anyway, this story behind that, and that's a great example because she also told this story of how the project came to be. And I think for these personal projects, telling the story of how the project came to be flexes what I always refer to as your problem spotting skill, because we're also obsessed with solving problems. But this spotting is so key. And so for anyone in our program that has one of these, I'm like, do not pass go until you tell us how this came to be. Otherwise, that's a big opportunity to show off those soft skills that you're totally skipping over. Oh my goodness. I have so many places I could go right now because I, <laughs> I, I just want to like say amen because I think yeah. absolutely. And, and so much of what you're talking about is that skill of storytelling, right? Yeah. Is being able to say, here's the plot and here's the problem that needed to be solved. And yes, there was a potential solution, but it didn't happen without an adventure or right. a challenge that you had to go through. Yeah. And so I, I love that way of thinking. That's something we talk a lot about um, with our team and with our clients even is, hey, this isn't going to go like A, B, C, D, E, you know, just like till the end. And then right. we all have the successful app that we're all going to make billions it's, off of. <laughs> Never happens that way. But everyone Instead, thinks it does. <laughs> How do we change that? How do we change that? But you know, that innovation curve, right? Where it's always mm -hmm. going to go up. You're always going to have the trough of despair, the dip or whatever yep. that has to happen. And I think that's true for the individual too. It's true for the person saying, I'm going to learn a skill. I'm going to get really excited because I learned the tool. 
Yes. Right. And that feels good because like all of a sudden you're able to like see things and then it feels real. Yeah. But then you're going to realize you don't know enough about what to do with the tool because you haven't had a place to apply it. And exactly. then it's like, oh, why am I even trying to do this thing? But no one will hire me because I don't have the experience. You know, it's this, this trough before you can go, no, yeah, now. So I guess what is the turning point for you? What's the thing when a person's in that, like, I'm not good enough. I don't have the shiny enough things. I don't, you know, where does it mm-hmm. tip back up to going? I'm, I'm capable of getting a job and excelling in this career. Yeah. I mean, part of what we do with our clients in this career strategy lab program, you know, we have like a community uh, as a part of this program. And that community is so powerful because that helps the clients. We call them clients, not students. So that helps the clients connect with other people who might be six months ahead of them, six weeks, six days, you know, and it creates this kind of aspirational component to this where they see these people who are getting interviews, who are just like them, who maybe only went to a boot camp or who have been working in UX for 15 or more years and also face the same challenges that someone who's been working in it for two years faces, which all goes back to these things, skills that are not part of most learning paths, whether you're self-taught, you know, it's storytelling, problem spotting, communicating all that both through words, design, and then verbally, that's really what, what we do. And so that turning point often happens when they can squash that um, negativity and, you know, imposter-like thoughts because they see other people achieving it. So it makes it feel more within their reach, you know? Yeah. Um, and a lot of it too is me just saying the same thing over and over and over (laughs) and over. Just keep um, beating that drum. Yeah. Yeah. To, to remind them like, no, you can get hired if you take these projects and take them to the next level and don't just show what you did, but tell what did you do? Why did you do it? How did you do it? What happened? What went wrong? Um, because there's this perception that every project must follow a f- perfect process. And if it didn't, you can't include it in your portfolio. Like people literally think this. And I'm like, who is telling you this and what is their address? You know, right? <laughs> it drives me up the wall. Right. <laughs> there's so much potential for people. Oh my gosh. I think we would just see talent come out of the woodwork. If, yeah. if, if they were able to kind of say, I, I feel like I have the permission to, yes. to share. I think permission is a word that I, we talk about a lot. I was just going to say that, like, let's give them a permission slip. I just did an Instagram post about this. <laughs> Good. I mean, that idea is such a powerful idea, right? We talk about yeah. it and in our, in our organization, one of the things that we realized, especially as we started to grow was how many people were holding back because they thought they didn't have the permission to do something. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, who said that? Well, no one said that. I just assumed that was the case. Yes. Well, okay, then I'm giving you the permission. Like, what do we have to do to give, like you said, give that permission slip out to say, here's what I tried. Here's what didn't work. Yeah. And, and, and oh, by the way, that didn't stop me. I tried something else. It also didn't work. 
and maybe that was when I decided to, to either pivot or persevere or punt it or whatever. Yeah. But I, I put in the perseverance or I put in at least the effort to say, took it to where I thought it could go. And here's what we found. Here's what I learned. Here's where where we, we think we could go with it in the future, et cetera. And those are all things that people, do, they stop, they stop at that, that first gate. And it's like, there's so, there's so much more opportunity past <laughs> the gate, the first gate, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, no, the permission thing is so big. And I think it, it kind of segues into this topic of, uh, taking, following the status quo or lacking critical thinking. So maybe you've had people ask you this where they say, uh, I heard my resume needs to be one page, or maybe you've received one page resumes from applicants and you think, why did you shove all this on one page? Like now it's unreadable, you know, right. or it's only scratching the surface. And I think along with that permission is the idea of learning to not take everything for face value regarding, you know, everything, but specific to your career, you know, social media is flooded with conflicting advice, advice set in different ways. Sometimes it's obvious clickbait, et cetera, but not just, for example, making your resume one page because you read one tweet from someone who's never come across your timeline before but you saw it on Twitter, design Twitter. So you did it that way. Like it, this happens all the time. And one page resumes is a big one. Um, can I include projects that didn't launch in my portfolio? That's a big one. Um, what if, what if a project in my portfolio didn't do research? Like, well, welcome to the real world, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. You know, what's funny is everything you're describing. It's funny. I wish I wish I could tell designers this or UX folks or honestly, anybody getting into this space. Everything you're describing on the individual level is exactly what we as a service agency deal with at mm. scale. Yeah. Right? So can I use the case study of the product that didn't launch? Yeah. Yeah, of course we can. We're gonna yeah. talk about what we did, what we what worked, what didn't, maybe even why they decided to not move forward. So we saved them money. Yeah. Right. Um, can I, can I talk about the things that failed during the project, but then ended up turning into a success later? Yeah. hundred mm-hmm. percent. We're going to talk about that all day long, Yeah, but it's just getting past that fear of going, it doesn't fit the mold, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what you're describing, whether you are trying to get a job as an individual, whether you're an agency trying to get clients or whether you are an employee, you know, at a company trying to communicate ideas, strategies to clients, stakeholders, et cetera. These skills of storytelling, problem spotting, written, verbal, visual communication, you know, they will not just help you get clients or get a job. They will help you be so effective once you are hired. And we haven't done the research yet, but one of the things I plan to do is go back to everyone that's been through our program, you know, a year after whenever we'll find time to do this and say, (laughs) like, thinking back to everything you learned in career strategy lab, like, was, have you applied what you learned or some of it to your job? And my hunch is, I mean, based on a couple of emails, but I want to do larger, larger sample set is to figure out these skills of 
writing or creating a presentation, the concept of headlines and balance of just text and imagery and stuff. My hunch is that helps you make a better presentation of, say, research findings or yes. a product strategy roadmap deck, you know, anything. So um, I'm very curious to do that. I don't think it will be shocking, but I'm curious to like get the sound bites and everything, you know? I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right because, um, so for example, my wife's a nurse and she's uh -huh. a unit, she's a unit educator of a, a large, um, at a large hospital and she, she's constantly putting out education material mm. to what, 150 nurses Plus that, that material gets distributed around the campus to what, 10,000 different, you know, employees in different mm -hmm. ways. And she'll often have me look at this, you know, design that she laid out and it's good. Of course, yeah. she's my wife. I'm going to tell her it's great, you know, <laughs> but there's, you know, just a few subtle things and people will go, oh my gosh, this is the best material we've seen come through the, the hospital. Yeah. And it's basic design principles. One. Yeah. So, so you go to, do go back to the basics. But also it's hierarchy, which I guess is in the design principles, but it's hierarchy. It's it's giving something some white space so that it's yes. not crammed into one page because you feel like it needs to be printable. It, you know, all these basic things where you, she was making assumptions about what she thought had to be true, but were rules that no one no one instated. So it was mm -hmm. give yourself the permission to let go of some of those things, give it some space to breathe so it's more effective. Yes. And, uh, and now she uses those. I don't have to review. I never, <laughs> never had to in the first place. She asked yeah. me, um, but she, she now takes those things and uses them and her day to day, she's a nurse. She's yeah. not, she's not a professional UX designer or print yep. design layout. She's trying to teach people things. And this is the truth of anybody in their career, no matter yeah. what they're doing. I mean, these principles of alignment, hierarchy, you know, layout, grouping, contrast, like all of these things, it makes me a little sad to think that somehow it feels like our our industry is doing a disservice to ourselves by not teaching people this, you know, or emphasizing the importance of this. And then in your wife's example, I think, imagine how much better the world would be if everyone you know, in third grade had to learn this stuff. Yes. And it's, you know, it could, I feel like some of this could be learned in like a three hour workshop or something, not, not to discount. No, design, you're right. It's simple things. When you see the before and after of like, right. Oh, that's bad. This is good. It's like, if you're hanging curtains you know, there's, I don't remember the exact rule because I'm not an interior designer, but there's like the right way and the wrong way to hang curtains. Uh -huh. And it has yep. to do with the height of the curtains and the alignment with the, you know, top of the window, whatever that's called. And once you see it, you can't unsee that, you know? Right. And so same thing for what you're talking about. Even like basic things like writing an email or a Slack thread you know, the wall of text that a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, could you just make three little chunks of text? People would read that. And so it's not just about your resume. It's like, if you want someone to read that email or that text message, chunk it up, you know, <laughs> like basic stuff. It's about being effective. And I think that we, we try to we try to put rules around things so that there's consistency. And I get why some of that exists or why we've tried to train people into consistency because mm -hmm. one, it's easier to teach that way. 
I'll just say it. It's easier to teach like, here's the way things ought to be done and everyone should do it. But I wish we would, I wish growing up, and this is something mostly because I probably wasn't the best academic in the world. I was much more the creative that wanted to say like, why does it have to be that way? Let (laughs) me break the rules and make something else. Um, Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Um, Mm -hmm. But but the question for me was, well, what's effective? If maybe there's a more effective way to do it, why wouldn't we at least try that? Yeah, um, I, I remember a little science experiment where we were supposed to, um, we were supposed to take a wheel, a large wheel, and then a rubber band and wrap it around it and have like a stick out, and it, it would like move. It was about motion, right? So it would, okay. it would make the wheel go across the room, and I was like, that's one way to do it. But what if I took a giant balloon and I blew it up, uh-huh. strapped it to the wheel, and tried <laughs> to blow it? It was the worst idea ever. It went like. <laughs> six inches. Yeah. But I remember the teacher being like, I love that you didn't necessarily follow the rules. I love that you tried something else to prove that maybe there might've been another way to do Mm -hmm. it. Yes. It moved it forward, but yet there's a reason we, we are suggesting this way. And actually it gave all the rest of students something else to see besides Mm -hmm. the instructions. Right. I could have followed the instructions and probably would have gotten a better grade, (laughs) but, but you know, like how to push the lines. So on my LinkedIn posts, I don't write paragraphs. I write mm-hmm. like one line and I put, uh, put a return in between. So people are just going to yeah. skim it. You know, yep. some people like that. Some people hate it, but it's yep. effective because then people can see the pieces they want. So what, like, what's effective? Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's all about, like we just talked about some of the, the basic principles that make it easier for the user or consumer of whatever you are making, right? So if you think of a resume, for example, you know, a lot of people forget about who that user is, the hiring manager, the recruiter, even the algorithm, right? Which is why we teach to make two versions of your resume. We call it the ATS version, applicant tracking system version, and the human version. Interesting. Yeah, because... If I'm a human and I'm sent your resume that's just like loaded with keywords and, you know, it and you've tried to shove it into a certain number of pages or even a lot of people's resumes will be one column because if you do research about applicant tracking systems, you know that it's hard for them to read columns. Oh, so right. as a human, though, Having a two-column resume is, in my opinion, easier to read. I've not done eye-tracking studies on resumes, but... <laughs> Absolutely. There, there's a lot of UX about studies about width. a narrow column yep. width. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that's why we do these two versions of resumes. And I think it's a great example of thinking about who is the user of this and how can I use des- literal design principles and, of course, like content and everything to make this the best per- version for them. So the literal design and layout of your resume is different for an applicant tracking system version versus human. And then the words on it will probably be slightly different as well because your more human version may not be as keyword loaded because it feels weird to read something that's like got keywords every third word or something, you know? Yeah. The way you're speaking sounds a lot like you're treating each thing as a product. Like, yes. you know, so, so go further with that. Cause I think that you're talking about a resume as a product. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're using the same language we would suggest we use when we're designing a mobile app or a web app yep. or, you know, a piece of software. Yeah. So we in career strategy lab, you know, I've developed this 
concept of a, you need to treat yourself like a product and then B you need to treat your core kind of like career assets, which we refer to as your resume, LinkedIn profile, and the presentation of your work portfolio, whatever you want to call it. I don't care. Um, and I created this analogy or framework because the problems that people make in their career and or their resume, portfolio, LinkedIn interviews, et cetera, to me, it all boiled down to not thinking about the user or the reader, not thinking about what is the job of my resume for what person, and then jumping to the design of the resume and not thinking about the content. So like just jumping through some of the basics of product development, you know, thinking about your user, maybe doing research to learn about your user, um, focusing on the content first, then the design, maybe even get as wild as testing your resume. That'd be useful. <laughs> and then, and then one thing that jumps out to me is you see the posts all the time. People say, I've applied to 50 jobs, 100 jobs, 400 jobs, and not had an interview. And I think to you, that's a usability test in action that has like glaring sirens going off if you're listening. It's telling you something is wrong with your resume. You know, what's the common denominator there? <laughs> yeah. So if you, even if you don't literally do a usability test on your resume, the fact that you're applying and to, tens, hundreds of jobs and not getting interviews, that is feedback that's telling you that more than likely there's something wrong with your resume or your LinkedIn, or you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall and applying to every job that has the word UX in it and hoping for the best, you know? But those are the, the funny thing. And like, to me, it's very ironic that product people, UX people, design people, creatives really don't do this. And I think you've worked with founders. So I think that it's a classic problem of founders are so close to their idea. They just, if there's emotions, there's everything involved and they need you and your agency to come in and like level set and give reality. And I think that's what's happening with a lot of the people that join our program where they're so close to it. The stakes are so high. They don't want to mess it up. They get caught in perfectionism and imposter and stuff. And when we break it down into this process of applying UX and product to you and these steps in the job search and assets, suddenly like, it is a lot easier. It's a lot more manageable. And they start to quickly identify the mistakes they've been making. <laughs> when it sounds like so much, you, you remove some, you remove the fear, right? And, and the so guesswork. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, because there is, there is a certain level of ignorance, right? Like there's the things of, I, I don't know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. totally. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think that's where we all start. Right. And so yeah. it is a question of, okay, well, what do you need to do to figure out what you don't know? Right. Um, and I think going through a program like this or stepping into asking questions or reaching out and saying why, mm -hmm. these are all just really simple, powerful ways to go, oh, well, I guess I can use the case study that, you know, never went live Yeah. or I, you know, I can tell a story rather than having to just have bullet points. You mm -hmm. know? And I think part of this is about kind of slowing down a little bit, which I know people don't want to, don't want to hear, but if you 
slow down and invest the time and energy to do these steps that maybe you're skipping over right now, on the other side of that will be a resume that actually works, a LinkedIn profile that's not like junky, a portfolio that you're confident in. And then guess what? Two years from now, four years from now, if you suddenly need to be finding a job or you decide you want to leave, you're not starting from scratch and you have these assets you're really confident in and you're going to get hired a heck of a lot faster because most people, every time they need to do a job search, they basically start all over, you know, and that fear and stuff creeps in. But if you can have these assets that you're confident in, it like exponentially decreases the, the, the time of your next job search. I want to ask kind of, this maybe goes to the question of uh, what do you think people get wrong? And, and this is maybe mm-hmm. opening a box. I don't want, do I want to open this box? I'm going to go for it. <laughs> there is, there is this term that has been used a lot and I, it happens a lot in hiring. Um, we try to avoid it because we, we, we want to make some assumptions. There's something deeper there, uh-huh. but do you, do you run into this question of we, we're, we're in a talent market where it just seems like everyone can get as a job coming right out of high school, making more money than our ancestors oh, combined, yeah. Yeah. you know, and is there, is there a, a feeling of this kind of combatant of entitlement? That's the mm. question. That's the word I was like, Oh, I don't know if I want to use it mm-hmm. because I think it has a lot of mixed emotions. There's a, there's a, a battle of entitlement or do you see entitlement as more of an issue or the just holding back is an issue or this like pulling back this confidence that's that imposter syndrome is an issue, which, and maybe it's both, but I'm just curious when you start, when you're talking to your students or you see people coming in and maybe it's going to be different for you because people that are coming to you have actually decided to make that decision of, I Mm -hmm. need help, right? I need help, which is a different posture. I think both of them are very relevant and I very much, I'm very active on social media, but I also do a lot of lurking. And by lurking, I mean listening. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I use social media as a Petri dish to understand the industry so I can, you know, better communicate with people about this niche of getting hired and stuff. I do think there is a sense of entitlement, and this has come up in a lot of conversations I've had on various podcasts I think there is a sense of entitlement because I think if we look at the marketing and sales of many UX boot camps and even university and and college programs, that is what they literally sell. Yeah. They tell you, you're going to join our thing and get hired and make a hundred grand and we guarantee it too. It's a promise. Yeah. And if we want it and let's face it, great products It's helpful if your product has a promise, but a lot of people ask me if we have a job guarantee and no, we don't. And I'm very transparent about that. And the reason is there are too many variables involved for me to promise you will get hired. But I have recently started down the rabbit hole of looking into the, you know, description of how you qualify for the job guarantee at different boot camps. And I'm reading all like the T's and C's and stuff. And some of them literally say, I won't name them here, but some of them say in order to qualify for the job guarantee, 
you must apply to, I believe one of them is four jobs a week and the other one might be 10, I forget, but it's not like one job a week. And so they are forcing people to fill this quota of applying to jobs per week, also to be doing quote networking. So coffee chats, reaching out to people, et cetera. And my stance with that is you don't need to play the numbers game because when you play the numbers game, you are by definition setting yourself up for failure. And so then you're going to get rejections and then you're going to doubt yourself and then you're going to redo your portfolio. And so there's that problem, which I think is an ethical problem. Um, and maybe we don't have to continue anymore with that topic because it's its <laughs> own podcast. But this hard. entitlement, yeah, they're entitled because they're being told this will happen. They don't realize all these strings attached on the other side. And those strings then fuel this massive topic of conversation on social media, which is imposter syndrome in design. Like you put that into YouTube or or um, Twitter or Medium or whatever, it's like a flood. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know how to fix it other than I kind of don't care what people think about me. <laughs> I've reached that point in my career in my I like life it. where I will speak out against that because I think it's wrong to make those promises or make those promises and then force people to play the numbers game. And it's doing them like emotional and psychological distress not to mention financial distress it's of, well, first paying for the boot camp, but then yeah. second, if you're conducting a job search where you're applying to what amounts to at least a hundred for many people jobs, you are, you are extending the time that it's going to take you to get hired. Whereas if you followed what we teach, which is not the numbers game, but relationships, yep. People get hired, like this is real data, uh, after applying to five jobs, 11 jobs, 13, 35, 50. So what's happening? You're getting hired faster with, with less effort. So therefore, you're making a higher salary sooner. So, you know, if you want to geek out on the math and stuff, like there is a massive financial impact to deciding you're going to play the numbers game or right. you're going to have a strategy and get hired faster, you know? I, I think it could be, a, we, maybe we need another podcast because no, yeah. I, after I, I'm, I think, yeah, after I, I do that, this research, but I want to write an article about this, but you know, I want, I want to make sure I'm getting my data right, but definitely yeah. two boot camps in the T's and C's tell people you have to, you have to play the numbers game. That's basically what it says. Well, and I, and I assumed that would be the case. And, and the, the problem is, is that we are, we're, we're creating in that narrative. I say we, like the industry is creating yeah. that narrative. And, yeah. and, and so it's one of those things where I want to go back to, yeah, I, I'm in the business of people. I happen to design and build apps. Yeah. Right? So if I'm not building relationships, if I'm not looking at how to have a conversation, how to build trust quickly, mm -hmm. how to communicate effectively then my business, let alone my own career, is not is going to go nowhere. Yeah. And so um, that's that's something we talk about. Is as soon as someone comes into Crema, one of the primary things that I look for is what we call humble confidence. Because mm, I, like I want that. someone I want someone who's humble enough to know they have a lot to learn because we never stop learning, right? Yeah. But I want someone who's confident enough to say I can take on any challenge. 
Mm, and if you've yeah. got someone who's over-indexing on confidence, they're arrogant and, and terrible to work with, Yeah. right? And you've got someone who's over-indexing on humility, they become timid and they mm-hmm. won't, they won't take a chance. Mm-hmm. When you find that little, that, that, that sweet spot in between, it is the person that says, I'm willing to, to speak up in the conversation. It doesn't mean you have to be the most extroverted human being in the room. That's not right. what we're asking for. No. But you're willing to, to share an opinion. When you're willing to ask the question, you're willing to put forth the design, you're willing to ask for feedback on the product, right? And these are all things. Yeah, and be (laughs) wrong, right? And then go, oh, this isn't a personal attack on my own personal character or identity. It's a it's it's a way for me to learn and get better. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is that is just not always what's taught. One of the other things in what you just said, like it brought up this idea for me of, and I think it stems back to a bit of the imposter syndrome and confidence and stuff. But I think so many people in our industry, and maybe this is true for others too, but I live in our bubble, um, tie their personal identity and worth to what they do. And I wish I could have a videotape of myself 20 years ago and think, was I doing that too? And yeah, I remember like these, you know, probably statements on my original website of like change the world through design and all this stuff. And like, okay, yeah, that's cool. Um, But I think it's very important to find other things in life you are passionate about or get hobbies that push you and challenge you. Like I love, um, long distance running. I love downhill skiing. I got into mountain biking, which is terrifying, but, um, so much fun though. I'm it's with fun you on the mountain biking. It's terrifying. But when I do those things, like for example, I ran for like 45 minutes this morning. I might go mountain biking tonight and doing those things or skiing some like super steep thing that freaks me out. When something happens in my business or something goes wrong, I think like, oh, well, that's okay. And I I literally try and think to myself, but remember that crazy hard thing I did like biking or, you know, that steep thing I did skiing or that marathon I ran or something. And it helps just put things into context, maybe. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, I see it so much. You were preaching to the choir because I, I talk a lot about this. I got into cycling a few years ago. And so oh, cool. I, it's the same thing, same thing for me, right? If I can go a long distance or if I can ride a really high elevation ride mm-hmm. um, and go, I'm going to, I'm going to do that in a time I've never done it before. I'm going to hit this hill faster yes. than I've hit it before. And there's a certain thing about not only like, there's a bit of a self-competition piece there, but yep. also it's the, what am I capable of? And if I don't test that, I won't know, right? Yep. And, and, and maybe I'm, I'm, I've tried to hit the hill and I, I literally missed it by 20 seconds. Yeah. You know, like I wasn't even close to my PR, yeah. but it doesn't mean that I didn't, wasn't going to try. Yeah. And, and I think that there's, there's something about this, this mindset shift. And I, I want, I love Simon Sinek's talks on these because he, he really pushes into the fact that like, we need to be teaching people to skin their knees more. Mm, right? I like that. And like we, we oh there's a whole thing on parenting here, but there, we overcoddle <laughs> our kids, right? Trying to protect them, but yep. not preparing them for the fact that life is filled with both challenges and huge rewards when you face those challenges. Mm-hmm. So I think I can think about every single thing that has ever been great in my life. Every single thing, you know, starting a business, having kids, getting married, going on that trip, riding mm-hmm. that bike ride that I did, 
um, taking on that client that I was way underqualified to take on to, yeah. whatever. They were all things that I had to go through pain, suffering, uh, like self-doubt, like challenge before it became this reality of something so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's like, okay, cool. You want the most, the, you, you want the job of your life? Well, get ready. It's going to be hard. Yeah. And that's okay. Like, yeah. love that. And yeah. then also don't tie your identity to when you fail at that. Because if your identity is wrapped up in this one thing, oh, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah. Um, no, I so- I think like there's this, there's almost this formula of success going back to entitlement and things. And I don't think people start out feeling entitled. I think through the messaging and marketing and stuff they consume, that entitlement surfaces, even if it's kind of subconscious, you know? And I think this whole idea of of coddling is so interesting because I often joke like with friends or my team or probably just to myself when I'm running and stuff, like yep. the, the reason, one of the reasons um, that people say they appreciate like the content or the videos I create is this like kind of no nonsense, tell it like it is style. And when people are deciding if they want to join this program, a lot of them want to know like how much one-on-one time am I going to get with Sarah? And like, basically is Sarah going to be there to like hold my hand and give me cookies and stuff? And I'm like, I'm very blunt about it. I'm like, we are here. We will set you up to succeed but you have to do the work and you're a cyclist. So like I use this Peloton example and I say, Mm. we are like Peloton and you can buy the bike, but if you want to get faster, lose weight Mm. or whatever your goal is, we are not going to call you every morning or like knock on your door until you get out of bed and scold you when you don't get on the bike, you know? And so there's this element of personal responsibility that we're very, adamant about in kind of the culture of career strategy lab. And we actually do have systems in place. It's kind of cool where we in the background, like monitor people's engagement and if they attend stuff and how many things they submit for critique and all this stuff. And if it looks like someone's going dark, we'll reach out. But after X number of reach outs, if you're ghosting us is I'm like, sorry, we are not here to coddle you, you know? Yeah. And this element of personal responsibility, I think, is a really important lesson to learn as soon as possible in your career. Because if you do that, you know, it has such ramifications, you know, for your professional and personal life too. No question. Yes. Okay. Well, we I, we are running up on time, so okay. I, I could nerd out with you on this like all day long. We're not going to want... talk about power zone training and cycling. I mean, now that I know this, <laughs> it is a, it, okay. Okay. No, we can't take it to that nerd level. No, we can't but, take it to that nerd level. Oh, but, it's, but can it's, I t- can I go, use go. one example? So, I love it. Please a do. lot of people like ask me what Career Strategy Lab is all about, and I was really inspired by Peloton. My Peloton is off to the side here. But what inspires me about Peloton is the goal of doing personal training at scale and their ability to help a lot of people at once, a lot of people with different fitness levels, you know, someone that has never, you know, ran a mile before or biked a mile to pros like yourself. And um, the thing is, 
I started Career Strategy Lab for many reasons, but one of them, I did do one-on-one coaching and I was like, this is unsustainable and I'm going to totally, I mean, I was burned out because I was like, this is just ridiculous. But I thought, can I do career coaching at scale? And so we're doing it because we have this program where not unlimited people can be in it, but if I hired more coaches, I guess we could be unlimited. But we can serve people at many different career fitness levels, let's call it. Um, it. And I kind of have been able to clone myself. So that's my last cycling analogy. (laughs) But a lot of people thought we couldn't do it. I'm like, watch us do this, you know? I... First off, I'm so impressed because I think there there is there, one because you made a cycling analogy, which makes me really happy. Um, uh, the, the a lot of folks that know me listening to this will be like, "Oh boy, George got, yeah, got excited there," but also because you you ended on something that has been a theme for me personally and for a lot of the especially leaders that I've been talking to, but I think mm. it's also true for practitioners coming up, which is this idea of being comfortable replacing yourself. Oh, yes. And, and it's so, it's such a, one, it's an identity, goes back to that identity conversation. It's an identity yep. crisis. It is a fear of loss of control. It is, um, you know, that it won't be the thing that you know only how to do. <laughs> yes. But what actually for, forces us to do is actually think about what we're great at and then to equip others, which is really the human experience, which is, you know, it's a, you know, call it that master apprentice relationship or that mm-hmm. mentorship or that sponsorship relationship where we bring people up. Yep. And what you're doing not only as an individual with your organization is you're bringing people up through yep. your program, but also you're bringing people up to say, you can also be a coach. You could help me do this. Now, mm-hmm. it sounds like there's some other areas you want to go that maybe you need to replace yourself even further mm-hmm. to say, okay, well, I believe this could be something even more if I replace myself. Mm-hmm. Crema, you know, transparently, Crema is what, 60 people, close to 60 people right now? Wow. And um, yeah, that would be impossible if I was still involved in client work. Mm-hmm. It would be impossible if I was still doing one-on-ones with everybody. Yep. It would be impossible if I thought I had to bring in every sale. Yeah. But by replacing each, or especially if I was designing screens still. But as I started to think about, and a mentor said, George, you're you're, you're smart. Good job. Yeah. You you know how to get clients. Good job. But if unless you want to do this one-to-one or maybe one-to-two relationship for the next. X number of years until you either sell this thing off or you, yeah. you hand, it, hand it to your kids or whatever you're going to do with it. Yeah. This is never going to go anywhere. Yeah. And that's such a hard thing to say. And I think it's true even as you're starting your careers to go, okay, what do I want to become great at? How do I think about teaching is learning? Mm-hmm. And how do I think about helping others and bringing myself up and replacing myself as I learn new skills? And yeah, that's all, that's all part of the story. It's, it kind of it, it kind of reminds me. Do you did you ever follow the um, flash designer and video guy Hillman Curtis? Um, he wrote uh, "Making the Invisible Visible." Oh and, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So he passed away years ago, but before he passed away, he had this video all about reinvention, reinventing oh, yourself, okay. and his reinvention. He started as a rock and roll guy, and then. I don't know, like they did it for a while and then he got into video and flash and storytelling and website design and everything. And like, I think this theme of reinvention is so important, especially 
in our industry where it is still so new and the opportunities that are going to be available five, 10 years from now, you know, are, are so unknown in the context in which, you know, industries that might need more UX people than others, like who the heck knows, you know, but it sounds like you've had to go through this reinvention process. I'm going through it as I was literally recording SOPs of how to do this stuff this morning. So I don't have to do it anymore. But in the same way that I'm helping people design their careers and apply, you know, product and sales and marketing to their careers. I mean, on my to-do list is to write my job description of what I think I should do as the CEO. And it's a little terrifying. So I don't know, because I'm like, if what, if what you am figure I supposed out what a CEO is supposed to do, let me know because I—that's a whole. We'll start a Google Doc after this. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. That sounds good. Well, I always like to end on something positive, and I think this is very positive. But what is something you know moving forward? You know, whether it's the the future of your business, the future of the industry, future of the roles in the people that you're seeing coming up. Mm-hmm. What's something you're excited about? Where you just go, man? You know what? This is this is a good time to be alive. I'm excited that this is this is where things are going. Yeah, I think the exciting thing for me is that UX isn't just needed at like fang companies, you know, kind of where we started with this. There are so many industries and very different industries that can benefit from UX. Like we just had someone get hired at Blue Origin. I mean, I'm kind of jealous, honestly. I kind of just want to go do that. But, (laughs) you know, we had another person get hired at this healthcare startup, multiple healthcare startups, but one of them has to do with um, the world of travel nursing. And I'm like, that would be really interesting, you know? And so seeing the impact that UX can have on not just like the UX of Facebook, you know, or Netflix or something, but having real impact. I mean, electronic medical record systems, that needs so much help. And if you have a background in healthcare, that could be an awesome switch move if you're getting in, into UX. So yeah, the application of UX to everything, not just like techie type stuff. I love it. I love it. Well, gosh, this has been fun. Sarah, this has thank, been fun. <laughs> thank you. First off, thank you for what you're doing. Um, like you said before, doing great things is hard uh-huh. and challenging, but I really appreciate you pushing in and going for it. So thank you for doing it. And thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was yeah, such a pleasure. We should do it again. Sounds good. Thanks again. Bye. This episode of People of Product was produced by Larissa McCarty with support from Julie Branson and Steph Inger. Our hosts are George Brooks and Daniel Linhart. People of Product is brought to you by Crema, a digital product agency. We believe that creativity, technology, and culture can help individuals and organizations thrive. Learn more at crema.us.